0: Welcome everyone to episode 55 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Scott Fawcett. Scott is the developer of the Decade System for Golf. He has worked with Will Zalatoris, Stuart
1: Sink, and Keith Mitchell, among others. Scott, how's it going today? Fantastic. I, uh, I appreciate this. You're literally the first person that I've ever just reached out to and been like, I feel like we'd have a cool conversation just from listening to him. And it's so funny. Like when you start talking with golf with some of the other guys, there's just so many crossovers between what I did with golf and poker. I just really thought, even though I know you've got a wide ranging podcast, I really thought this would be interesting. So thank you for, uh, for taking a flyer. I'm sure you're like, who the hell is this guy? (laughs)
0: Well, the crazy thing about you reaching out to me is that I was just in Kiowa Island with my good friend, Lee Rivas, whose, whose son is a top amateur golfer. Oh, cool. And he had, he had given me the theory of don't, which was transformational for me, I have to say. I have a very bad mental game in golf.
1: And it turns out that you developed the theory of don't, or at least... Did you did ask him that me? by any chance? I, I was curious if it, if it was or not. I did because we we played a round
0: that was really the best that I have played in about seven or eight years. And during the round, he was tracking everything. It looked very intense. And I, I asked, it turns out it was the Decade system.
1: That's hilarious.
0: <laughs> yeah. And the theory of don't was a video that he had come upon in the Decade app.
1: Yep. That's, that's hilarious. I mean, well, again, there's so many things. If you think you're a lunatic on the golf course, trust me, I've got you times a billion plus aliens. Like it's, I am the biggest lunatic on the planet. And so, so much of what I teach is just like picking into my brain and being like, what's all the dumb stuff that you think and remember thinking it's honestly why I've entered a few more golf terms this year, just to play more live golf and just remember all of the stuff that you think. But What I try to get players to do is if they're standing over a shot and they're just not quite committed, that's, you don't have to back off the shot for that, but if you're standing over the shot and there's any iteration of the word don't in your head, don't go left, I don't know what the wind's doing. I don't really know what the break's going to be on this putt. Any iteration of the word don't whatsoever, that's a hard reset. You got to those you have to back off the shot and just start over cuz you literally have no idea what you're doing. If you're just kind of like daydreaming, why did I wear red shoes today or whatever, just come back to the moment, hit the shot, but don't is a is a killer. You you can't hit a shot with don't in your head.
0: So Gavin's explanation of the theory of don't, this might be completely off. He said that your subconscious doesn't, doesn't know the difference between do and don't like the conscious mind. They appreciate don't hit it right because the water is right. Aim a little left, but your subconscious, it just hears water. It just has water on the mind. And so you figure out a way to hit it in the water.
1: Is, is, I've, that I've an, seen, seen, is that a reasonable description, or, or I, I don't know if the science behind that is accurate or not. I, I don't know if that is or isn't, but I do know I've heard that definitely many times before. But really, more than anything, like I'm sure it's like yeah, kind of ish. But I'm sure it's more along the lines of you're just not committed, and and again, once you're not committed, that's when you're going to hit more outlier shots. So yes, that water is probably going to be far more in play than if you weren't thinking that again the whole point is to always choose a small concise target Well, it's, it's a, lot, a lot of people try to talk in golf like aim small miss small and i'm like actually the psychology of it is aim small and trust you're going to miss big so you, you you've aimed small that takes all of that into consideration so if there's water on the right we want to be aiming with off the tee, you know at least 30 35 yards left of that i don't care if that's into the trees then you need to aim in the trees i'd rather be in the trees than in the water because everything that we're going to talk about probably throughout this podcast is going to be just range, you know, it's just like hand ranges. It's that's like shot patterns. Essentially. I I really believe that. So you've got a range of potential outcomes. And so what I try to people get people to think about their shot pattern is like a shotgun blast. So you pull a trigger on a shotgun, even though I'm from Texas, I don't know how many pellets are in a shotgun, but let's go with 50, 50, come out and make a shotgun blast. Well, a golf shot pattern basically resembles a shotgun blast. If you hit 57 irons on a range, except only one pellet is coming out of the gun at each time and you on each shot and you don't know which one is coming. So you don't allow for the entire range of possibilities, outcomes, but 80, 85%, you want to make sure that that part of your shot pattern is safe. Um, And so you're just going to have to aim away from that water hazard, just saying, don't go into, you're going to have to give it some level of safety away from it. So to put this in the
0: language of Dave Pels, who I don't hear talked about much anymore, but he was the golf guru when I was playing high school golf back in the day.
1: Oh, cool. Uh,
0: I was not good. Mm -hmm. I was was a non-starter, but I was on the team. Um, So he would talk about the percentage error index, which is basically the miss over the length of shot And he said that basically this number would would be fairly stable for your typical player, like your best ball strikers in the world at that time would be around 5%. And their miss at 200 yards would be 5%. It would be 10 yards on average. And at 100, it it, it would be 5%. Um, Do people still talk in these terms, like percentage error index or –
1: no, but that's honestly like a, a giant, giant portion of what decade is. So Dave, everything Dave did, which again, he's a NASA engineer. The guy's really smart. He did the best he could with the tools he had at the time. But at the end of the day, he did not have track man, you know, launch monitors. He's just all this gear, if you will. And so, yes, he's correct, but he he really should be thinking more along the lines of like standard deviations. And then like, honestly, if you took about 85% of your shot pattern, just chunk the 15%. It doesn't even matter where they go. As an extreme example, if I hit my seven iron 180 yards and I hit 50 of them, and then I accidentally top one a foot, I don't want that to destroy. So if I carried 57 irons, 180 yards, and then I top one, it's going to destroy the mean. So we don't want outliers to destroy the average. And so I really try to get down to like 85%. I want the majority of outliers to go away. And then I want to find the standard deviation of the rest of the shots. And so that would tend to be between five and 7%. Again, obviously, depending on your handicap and everything else like that. But I mean, yeah, he definitely was, I had never heard of him talk about that, but there are a lot of, so decade is is again, exactly how you explained based on some percentage of your shots and the standard deviations of it. But at the tour level, that is basically 5%. That That is- actually spot on and are you
0: are you measuring your miss under conditions of pressure i'll just give you an example i've been doing a trip for the last five years where some some poker and sports analytics guys we go out to colorado and gamble on golf over four or five days and have a great time we know each other's games very well. Like we know how to handicap everything. We play a variety of different matches and everyone folds under the pressure, right? But what I find particularly irritating is that on the short game, I can be perfect in practice and then just utterly fall apart on the course, like completely unrecognizable. Um, so my, my data, if we went out to the range and recorded, it would not, would not be representative. How do you handle that
1: problem? So I'm going to answer that by actually going into the Wayback machine and giving you the background of decade. And then I'll, I'll promise I'll answer that question at the end of it. So, you know, I went to Texas A&M, uh, you know, studied math in a couple of different areas, went and played professional golf for six years, quit got my amateur status back, started an electricity company, and then started playing a lot of poker, which is where I start learning about hand ranges. I start playing a lot better golf. And then that's when the new strokes gain statistics were starting to be released. So they started tracking shot link data, which is basically just to the inch where every golf shot started and finished, and then the strokes to hole out from any given area. So once I started realizing 2011, that's what they were creating with the data, I started realizing, well, it's like it really is like poker stove. Honestly, like if I know it takes one and a half strokes to hole out from eight feet, and two strokes to hole out from thirty-two feet, and two point eight strokes to hole out from a hundred yards in the fairway, and three point zero two strokes to hole out from a hundred yards in the rough, like once I know how many strokes it takes to hole out from any given area on a golf course, well, the next thing all I need to do is quantify the size of my shot pattern, like I was explaining, and then. I can basically solve course management. So when I started first having this idea of what I could do, again, I really was just trying to help my own game. I went back and played professional golf again. Once I started, you know, Chris Como and I are, are, are really good buddies. And once I started working on my game with him and playing better, I actually entered the PJ Tour Q school back in 2008 as a 35-year-old amateur. Got through all four stages, went and played again. Like I say, I promise I'm going to get to the question here at the end of this. But that's when I first started realizing with the tools we have on hand now, Rather than course management being this elusive, mystical, folklorish uh, aspect of the game, like I could you know, solve it as a concrete math problem. Well, what I first started doing to your, well, pressure creates bigger shot patterns. Well, I didn't do it in my simulator you see here. I had a different one at the time, but I basically quantified the size in directional and distance control standard deviations of my shot pattern. I did it indoors in a perfect setting. I then went outside and did it on a driving range with different crosswinds and different you know, lies, a little bit uphill, a little bit downhill, ball above my feet and everything. So my, st- my shot pattern standard deviations, making it up, went from four to six from that. Like I say, I'm just trying to use numbers. And then I went out on the course and I actually said, okay, I'm aiming on this number one. I'm aiming this seven iron at this point, And I missed it six feet short and right. Well, once I did that over like the course of 50 rounds, so now I know what my shot pattern size is indoors, I know what my shot pattern size is outdoors on a range. And now I know I'm making a few, most people think this is like a totally mathematically solved problem, but I had to make some assumptions. Yes, like you say, it's gonna get bigger as pressure increases. So I made some adjustments, assuming that instead of my uh, standard deviation being at 5%, now it's at 6% because of the situation. But then what's interesting with golf is it still is a it's a the pattern is still consistent. It's just getting larger, which actually as bizarre as it sounds, doesn't change anything in the math. It would be like playing. This is probably a terrible analogy because I'm making this one up on the fly. But it would be like playing a game of poker with 20 decks instead of just one. Like the odds really wouldn't change that much of what cards coming next you know what what you know instead of the rule of two and four it's not like it would become the rule of six and eight or something like it's it'd probably still be about the rule of two and four on the turn and flop right um, or the turn and river rather so the pressure does make it bigger but that's kind of irrelevant to the actual strategy does that make sense yeah definitely and, and and honestly but a lot of what i don't think that i realized when i was creating all of this if you'd asked me in 2015, after, you know, I caddied for Zala Torres when he won the Texas Amateur and the U.S. Junior, the second player I taught because I live in Dallas, the SMU head coach asked me, he's like, dude, whatever you're teaching, Will, will you come teach DeChambeau because he fires at every single pin? I can't get him to stop. Cool. I went and taught it all to him in February of 2015. Three months later, he was 67 in the world at the time. Three months later, he wins the NCAAs and U.S. Amateur. And it's like all these young players are so good. It's incredible. They just don't have a clue how to play the game. And I do mean this like largely because they don't have a prefrontal cortex. Like they don't have the experience necessary to make good decisions. So even if you explain to them, hey, you got to do this, this, and this out there. Removing the emotion from decision making is actually what it is. So like if you'd asked me in 2015, I would have told you I'm a genius. The math is amazing. It's all the math. And I realize now seven years into teaching it. It's all the psychology of the dumb shit guys like you and me do constantly and, and having a workaround for it. Like emotions can't help you make better decisions. And we're trying to work around those because what I would be doing for you is rather than saying, well, let's, let's, let's account for your larger pressure induced shot pattern. I'd say, let's work on how to not feel the effects of the pressure more than I would say, let's change our strategy. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, Definitely. Can I ask you a technical question about the system? Sure. So, Mark Brody, when he developed Strokes Gained, he is a finance professor, so he had in his mind the idea of benchmarking, and Strokes Gained is a benchmarked system where you're benchmarked against some population. From what most people are interested in, they like to see the benchmark of the PGA Tour players, and they wanna know strokes gained putting and strokes gained approach for various PGA tour players. Um, <clears throat> wouldn't do me any good to benchmark against the PGA tour baseline. How do you find, how do you handle the benchmarking problem for a different population of players? I would imagine that even the college population is just completely different than the PGA population. How do you develop uh Benchmarking data for new populations.
1: So initially, again, like I made it up. Well, so if a, if a PGA tour scoring average is seventy, and we know these benchmarks to hold out from every single area, and I know that that's a, a plus seven type handicap. So then your scratch is going to be seven shots worse than that. It's pretty smooth between the four strokes gained categories, and I don't know what the percentages are off the top of my head, but like. Just their strokes gained approach, strokes gained driving, strokes gained around the green, and strokes gained putting. It just it's it's not twenty five percent. But I would just basically say, hey, you're seven shots worse. We're going to take each one of the metrics up twenty five percent. And really, I think I allocated it. I'm sure I could remember if I took a second. But I allocated it maybe like ten or twelve percent to short game, uh, twenty five percent to putting, maybe thirty percent to driving, and the rest to approach play. Um, some, some variation right around there. Like I did just literally just kind of like, I bet this is right. And my intuition as a player, who's got a decent math background, my intuitions have always pretty much been spot on. But so then once we created the decade app, now I've got 20,000 members. So I've got, you know, 400 college teams with 10 guys on each team. So I've got three or 4,000 college golfers a year entering rounds of 10 tournaments plus qualifiers. At this point now I've solved that for what the numbers, act the, the, the benchmarks for a, well, in our app, I allow you, if you're, if you're, if you're comparing, uh, you're, you're tracking your own statistics, I give you different, uh, you can compare against PGA tour LPGA tour. Cause I've got 30 girls that have tracked the stat, their stats on the LPGA tour. So I've made their benchmarks, uh, College or or Wagger, which is World Amateur Golf Rankings, top 100, uh, top 25 college teams, scratch player, five handicap, 10 handicap. So I let you choose your peer group, but I do always just tell everybody, just compare against the PGA Tour. It's the most robust uh, data set that we've got. It's for sure accurate as can be. I think my other ones are as well. But what you're really looking for in your own game improvement is strokes gained against Brandon. So all I really want you to do is see what you even if you're minus two strokes gain putting against the PGA Tour, well, we've got a benchmark now. I just need you to get better that the numbers are still just going to be a ratio, essentially proportionally the same. Makes doesn't really matter. (laughs) Makes sense. But the decade system is mostly
0: targeted for better golfers the way it's been done so far. Is that correct?
1: It for sure ish. Um, so when I, I well, again, back to the, to, back to the actual story, the, the Genesis, if you will. So I went back and played professional golf 19, uh, 2009 through 2012 ish got my under status back again in 2013. And they, they, the first released the strokes gain putting in 2011 and actually wrote a thread on two plus two, uh, in May of 2011, that was titled as drive for show putt for dough. Really true. And it was just some extremely crude and terrible math just using win rates, money uh, list rates, and then strokes gain putting stats. Like that was it. That was all I could do. And I was like, man, the guys that putt the best don't actually do that well. I mean, on average, it's gotta be something else. And I'm a guy who I drive the ball really well, don't putt very well, but I've still been able to be a pretty good golfer. So I'd always kind of intuitively thought something was wrong there, but then with that strokes gain putting was the first place that you could actually see it. So that's why I started this whole, like, now I'm going to really dig in once all of the strokes gain data started coming out. Well, I did it for my own game. I really just wanted to win the U S mid-am at some point to play in the masters. And I got a cortisone shot in my right elbow, the uh, like two weeks before the Texas amateur in 2014, and the doctor paralyzed my right hand. Um, obviously, luckily it's come back for me, but I couldn't move my hand for like three days. And that's the only reason that Will Zalatoris was a junior golfer at my home course who, you know, I've known since he was nine. We've played a hundred rounds together, but I'd never like I've helping him a little bit with strategy. But when I called him, I'm like, dude, I did something math-based for strategy that I think would really help you. I can't play in the Texas amateur now in two weeks. Let me caddy for you. And just if you let me play you like a video game, you'll win. And and this is because he's, as we all know now, he's an amazing ball striker. His putting's a little dicey. But based on my theory of what I was coming up with, we can hide that to some extent. What's paradoxical and odd is the better ball strikers and worse putters, they, they actually need to, I don't about to say they need to play more conservatively. It's not that they need to play correct still, but they historically, they're trying to be very aggressive with their approach shots because they're trying to make their birdies from hitting the ball. Well, not by making putts. And it's actually the exact opposite of what they need to do. If anything, they could be technically a little bit more conservative than, than some people. Because by them hitting as many greens in regulation as possible, they're eliminating two or three 8- to 12-foot par putts a day, which the math on that is just very straightforward. That's like a shot and a half. So you can't try to make more birdies. You're trying to eliminate bogeys far more than anything in this game.
0: In preparation for the podcast, I listened to a pod that you did five years ago where you said that Dustin Johnson's win at Riviera was the most impressive win that you had seen based on the shot link data. And you mentioned that he was on the, the correct side of the pin 82% of the time, or something along these lines. Yeah. Which is suggestive of conservatism on his part, right?
1: Um, it, it is to some extent for sure. He's. You, if you the the, the way that you can think of this is if i told you on a driving range to take your 8 iron and hit it at the white flag theoretically you should blanket that flag you know 50% left 50% right you should you should blanket that flag left and right fairly well centering your shot pattern over the flag well now if all of a sudden we get out onto the golf course and you've got an 8 iron and the pin is 4 yards from the left if you blanket it 50% Well, you're going to miss the green to the short side an awful lot. You're going to miss the green left an awful lot. So what you're talking about there is I, again, this is something you have to do by hand. But if I take where the golf hole is, most people think of short side as being, I missed the green short-sided. But for the metric you're talking about, if he hit it to one foot from the hole, but it was on the short side of the flag, I would consider that short-sided. And I think you're probably right. It was in that 82% of the time. It was at least 75 to 80% of the time his ball finished on the, the correct side, the fat side of the pin, which would just mean if the pin is four from the left, his ball finished at least one inch to the right of the hole, all the way up to off the green right. But that's that's where most people think that these guys are playing super aggressive out there. And it's like, well, if they are, then that means they're, they're aiming directly at the flag, which means that short side ratio should just be 50-50 because they're blanketing the flag. You can't have it, You can't eliminate one side of your shot pattern just because you're trying to, like you still have a shot pattern. And so you are centering that if if this microphone is the hole, if I'm centering my shot pattern directly over the hole, that's 50-50. But if it's skewed towards the middle, 80-20, it kind of implies you're aiming right of the hole.
0: Definitely makes sense. Now, if I'm playing with the the decade system, the decade system is it knows the course map essentially. And it's, it's telling me exactly where to aim. Is that correct?
1: I subscribe to the theory of, I'd rather teach a man to fish than give him a fish. I could create you know a, a watch-based app that kind of does it for you. But unless I know exactly where the pin is, you, it's an unsolvable problem. Because if the pin is on the left side of the green and there's nothing but fairway run up or light rough, it can't spit out the same target if the pin was on the right side of the green and there's a lake, right? So the golf is very unique because it's the only sport in the world that's not played on a uniform field of competition. Like every basketball court's the same. Every football field's the same. Every baseball field is basically the same. Sure. We've got different porches, but there's essentially the, the bones are the same golf. I mean, not, no two holes are the same. Like even the replica courses. You know, this is number 13 at Augusta here in Texas. Like, no, it's not, not even close. I see what you're trying to do, but it's not even close. So it's just a sport that, yes, there are other apps out there that are trying to say like, we've got AI powered strategy advice. It's like, well, it doesn't work. So I teach you how to do that yourself in two, three seconds tops. Um, If you're really playing tournament golf, then yes, we need to go through the course and the satellite's. Uh, ahead of time obviously i know you play a lot of golf out at tpc summerlin your tee shot's going to be different you know whether you're playing number 10 or number 18 like where your target is it's it's going to be different relative to the middle of the fairway and so i teach you what things rather than it just being abstract and you just kind of winging it i teach you exactly what questions to ask of each hole to then solve the problem for yourself but then exactly what you're asking on approach shots i give you an exact way to find that optimal target. And it is by using basically a percentage of the length of the shot. So if you're a professional level golfer, it's going to be 5% of the length of the shot is where our targeting is going to start from all the way up to, if you're a, you know, I don't expect a guy that shoots 95 to go through the effort of doing this, but someone who's shooting in the eighties, that number might be eight or 9% that we would have them using. And so what you really find is that is a, is a concrete example. If we're 160 yards in the fairway, five percent of 160 is eight yards you can't aim less than eight yards from any edge of the green front left right but you always start or back but you always start off with the side of the green that the pin is located next to so if the pin is four yards from the left edge of the green and you're 160 i can't have you aiming less than eight yards from the edge of the green so you need to be aiming at least four yards right of that pin and by aim i simply mean center of your shot pattern so i need you centering your shot pattern four yards right of that pin, And then that's, if you think about it again, that back to Dustin Johnson controlling that shot pattern, think back to DJ. That's exactly what he was doing is he's aiming like by definition, he's aiming slightly away from that hole. That makes sense.
0: Now if you look at the way pros are playing courses that they have played for a long time, they've trended towards more aggression. So let's take TPC Sawgrass, for example, There's the drivable par four on the back nine, whatever it is, 14, 15, 12, 12. Uh, Now all of them drive that green, basically all of them. And they never did before. Is it because they're better golfers or because the analytics suggest that this is just a better way to go?
1: The analytics. The easier example of that is number 10 at Riviera. If you can think of that hole, it's the drivable par four that's got a crazy skinny green. Do you know what hole I'm talking about there? Yeah, where it's like a a reverse bowl. It's only nine yards deep on the right. So the front left, it's it's like a bulb, um, whatever kind of uh, fruit that is. It's got like a bulb on the left. And then the right is just a skinny little part that sticks. So it sits very wide, maybe 30 yards left to right. Probably not that 25 yards left to right. And the left side of the green is probably 20-ish yards deep, which is still narrow. But the right side of the green in between those bunkers, uh, long, short, and, and right, is only nine yards deep. And it angles away from you. Uh, so the traditional advice on that hole was if you are going to be going for it, uh, if the pin's in the front left, you want to be going for that green, and if the pins in the back, right, you want to lay up short left of this bunker. So you've just got a nice little angle from 70 yards because you can get in some really funky spots. If you hit driver and the pins in the back, right, you can get in some really weird spots. That was just the traditional advice. Well, along comes, you know, shot Lincoln for lack of a better way of saying it like decade, like that whole I ex- exclusively have changed exactly how the PGA Tour plays it. Where historically, maybe as much of a third of the field would lay up short of the bunker, leaving themselves a pitch shot. And I think it was last year, maybe 2021, one person on in the final round actually laid up short. Whereas normally it would have been 15, 20 people. Only one guy did. And the key to this is, and the key to all things decade is on a hole like that you play very aggressive off the tee in this par fives on your second shots, You play very aggressive because you really do materially improve your birdie rate as you get closer to the hole. So we can actually afford more bogeys because I'm going to offset them with more birdies. Typically in the fairway, if I'm going to try to just get more aggressive with the seven iron, it doesn't lead to more birdies just because shot patterns are so big. So if I'm aiming a seven iron directly at a flag, yeah i might hit a few more really close than if i was aiming seven or eight yards right of the flag so by aiming with the correct air quotes correct strategy i'll still actually make the same amount of birdies i'll have a slightly longer birdie putt on average but i'll make more of uh, but i'll have more of them the flip side is i'm eliminating the silly kind of bogeys where it's like gosh dang what i try to get that aggressive on that shot and and this just actually backs up perfectly from the decade stats portal as your scoring average improves from 95 to 79 out of those 16 shots of improvement, only one is from more birdies. The other 15 shots is by making fewer bogeys and higher. And it's like, well, okay, that seems kind of obvious 95 to 79, but as your scoring average improves from 79 to 70, 75% of that improvement also is from bogey and higher avoidance. Like literally as you improve through the seventies, The vast majority of your improvement is from making fewer bogeys, not making more birdies. And so in a hole like 10 at Riviera, we try to be aggressive off the tee. And then if you get in a spot, you're like, huh, that didn't work out. Just dump it to the front part of the bulb, try to two putt and move on. Like it didn't work out. That's part of the the key of, of proper strategy is you do play aggressive in some situations, but then you have to have the patience to be like, well, it was a birdie hole. I hate saying that word too. It was a birdie hole back on the tee, but based on where that tee shot went to, it is no longer a birdie hole and being able to recognize that and then have the distantly like, okay, I'm now, I'm just trying to get out of here with, and, and technically I would say not even par like a 4.25 because you're going to three putt so often from that front little bulb to the back pin from, you know, 50, 60 feet.
2: That so I mean, we, so that's a hole that,
1: that's a hole that I created a decade in 2014. And then I actually caddied for Zalatoris in at Riviera in the PGA tour event. That was his first start on the PGA tour was in 2015. So he's basically the only player I had worked with in the field at that time. And actually the, 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 scoring average on the whole that year was 4.09. But if I take 2011 through 2015, the scoring average on the whole overall was 4.04. Don't worry. I've got this on another monitor right here. Cause David and I just happened to be talking about it this morning, but from 2011 to 2015. So the inflection point there is decade. And then from 2016, because at that point I had at least probably six or eight guys on the tour that I was actually working with, but another 30 ish guys that had seen a bunch of the video content that I supplied to the, the Chris Comos, the the top golf instructors out there. And from 2016 through 2020, I need to update this. Haven't updated since the pandemic. The scoring average dropped from 4.04 to 3.89 in those subsequent, uh, what is that? Five, five years five years leading in 4.04 data analytics revolution takes over and like 0.15 doesn't sound like that much, but if you take, it's like, you have to annualize a a return in the stock market. I got to annualize that to 18 holes. If I take 0.15 and multiply it times 18, that's 2.7 shots. The leader in strokes gain total last year was 2.1 shots. The equivalent improvement they have made on that hole pre and post data is better than the number one player in the world gains overall just on that one hole. So when you're thinking about
0: a short par four, like number 10 at Riviera, the cost benefit is actually that you should take a lot of risk to try to get on the green because you're likely to two putt if you find the green, but the cost benefit for say, taking a seven iron in the middle of the fairway is never really there. If you have to go to a dangerous pin because you don't yes. make a lot of six and nine foot putts anyway. So
1: why take a lot of risk? But so that's why exactly. bring on the risk of the three putt or, or worse. It's really only once you start getting inside of like 20 or 30 yards that you can confidently start feeling like I can get this inside of eight feet. And I always refer to eight feet because it's the inflection point where eight feet on the PGA tour is where they average 1.5 putts to hold out. So it's basically a coin flip. So if you can start to think like somewhat spatially with me, three feet on tour is basically a hundred percent make rate. So they average one stroke, 1.01 strokes technically from three feet. They average 1.5 strokes from eight feet. So you lose your first half shot of value in the first five feet. You then don't lose the next half shot of value. They average two putts to hole out from 32 feet. So you lose the first half shot of value from three to eight feet. It then takes eight to 32 feet to lose the next half shot of value. And if you can think of like just a circle and how little area an eight, you know, an eight foot or a 16 foot circle, an eight foot radius would be then versus a 32 foot or 64 foot, 32 foot radius. Like you're just gonna hit, it's just hard to hit it inside of eight feet. And I'm not saying I'd rather you be 20 feet than 25 feet, but at the end of the day, like you average 1.93 putts from 25 feet, 1.88 from 20. I don't really care. Now, the difference in eight feet and three feet is a half a shot, which there's just so many little exact incidences like that. Like I've got Mark Brody's page, uh, what do we got here? Page 85 from the book, just laminated because I refer to it constantly. From 80 yards in the fairway on tour, they averaged 2.75 shots to hole out. From 120 yards in the fairway, they averaged 2.85. So that 40 yards, I mean, it matters, but it's only a tenth of a shot. It's not that big of a deal. I would have thought it was, I would way rather be 80 than 120. Like at the end of the day, not really, but 20 to 40 yards. Now we're only talking a two foot delta goes from 2.4 to 2.6. So the 20 to 40 yards is two tenths of a shot. The 80 to 120 is only one tenth of a shot. So the closer we can get it is by far again, within reason and whatever other caveat I probably need to throw in on that, but closer is by far better, which is where you see, you know, just everybody hitting driver everywhere on tour now. And it drives everyone on social media crazy. That's why. That's why when DeChambeau, I literally texted Como, uh, you know, Bryson, it's not like he had a nine shot lead entering the final round, but just by watching at the U.S. Open that he won at Wingfoot, just by watching the early play and realizing how hard it was playing and just kind of knowing, you know what? Nobody is going to shoot low today. And Bryson, because of just shipping it up there as far as he possibly can every single time, I literally text him before he teed off on one, whoever's in the group in front of him lost their ball left, I believe on number one within the group or two in front of him, lost a ball over there. And I texted him, I was like, he is a hundred percent winning this golf tournament today and it might get ugly. Like I literally said, like, just there's no way he can lose this golf tournament unless he, I mean, literally dies out there.
0: That's great. Now, the shot link data, when it comes in, you've mentioned that you try to look at the shot link data every week for the PGA Tour. One time I requested to get the shot link data because they give it away if you're in academics or whatever. And it came and i couldn't make any sense of it at all it was geographical data and i couldn't interpret it how do you that get the data better. in a form <laughs> how do you get the data in a form where you can interpret it
1: uh, i don't well that's what, so that's what's funny so what i did with creating decade really predated me having access to shotlink i did everything based off of just the published numbers here are the shotlink here are the, the strokes to hold out numbers i don't actually need shotlink to, to solve course management. I just needed Mark Brody's the data. Here's the, here's the, the remaining values. And then I need to know the shot patterns of me or whoever it is that I'm working with. Now, when I look at it on a daily basis, a weekly basis, I actually just go through it by hand. So if I've got a player, Keith Mitchell, whoever I actually, because it's not because like you say, it's, it's, It's geotagged in an X, Y, Z coordinate. The X and Y is like you would traditionally have in any, you know, grid. And then the Z is actually elevation. So I know if we've got uh, a putt from, I I hope that listeners can follow this, but if I've got a, a 10 foot putt and to the right of my ball is a coordinate of one and to the left of my ball is a coordinate of negative one in the Z. I know it slopes from right to left. So you can actually make a 3d topographical map of the greens from that X, Y, Z data. But all you need to understand is there is a, a, a common point each week that you then base all of those numbers off of, but it's just not something I do. I graduated from college in 1996. So while I do have a couple of different math related degrees I graduated before Excel was anything. So like I, it's not what I do. It's, it's again, but it's not what I need to do for my players. What I actually need to do for my players is I go through by hand and I calculate how many times their ball was on the short side or the long side of the hole. But you couldn't automate that anyways. That's something only like me as a player because you're kind of like if the if the greens got a little back left quadrant and the pins back there, well, where do you draw that theoretical line? that we're going to consider it short-sighted left of. I just, I'd literally just eyeball it. And the ones when I'm like, that's on my line. I just, the first one I give to them, the second one I take away, the first one I give. And, but usually it's not more than one or two around a tournament rather that actually fall on that line. So it's almost irrelevant. Um, so I go through by hand and calculate. Well, so when I first got access to shot link, it was when Como got hired by Tiger. And I went through and did a, a a ton of work this is embarrassing is always to admit to another adult. But I because I don't know how to do it, I, I downloaded these PDFs, actually that are the graphical images of where the shot went. because I like, I just want to see if I can like reverse engineer his strategy a little bit. So I downloaded like four tournaments worth of PDFs, and I just kind of went through them like if you hit a ball on track, man, just one shot on a launch monitor, I really have no idea where you're aiming technically. You will just see like on a scatter plot one shot, and then you hit a second. And then by the time you hit twenty, I can kind of tell what your shot pattern is and where you were theoretically aiming. When Tiger hits a shot from 160 yards in the fairway, 21 feet short left of the hole, I don't know where he was actually aiming that. I know where the ball went, but by the time I look at, and this is the embarrassing part, I went through, once I got started looking at four tournaments worth, I was like, dude, I really think I can do something very cool here. And then just because I wasn't necessarily in the best marriage at the time and I was just staying in my office as much as physically possible, I was like, screw it. I'm going to reverse engineer his whole strategy. And I took six months going through three years of his entire seasons. I went through 20,000 of his shots by hand, hand plotting where they went to reverse engineer his strategy. And it basically perfectly mirrors decade. Like the guy actually played with near perfect strategy. There's when I say near perfect, that's only because I'm trying to leave the door open for the fact that it wasn't. I can't differentiate anything from what he did then from what the math of decade says. Like the guy literally played with mathematically perfect strategy. And I have no idea how.
0: <laughs>
1: Maybe uh, it wouldn't have been
0: his coaches at the time, right? He would have just had an intuitive sense for that. I, I always,
1: I actually always did think so. I was at the probably 2004, 15 or 2017 pga uh the merchandising convention and they have their uh hall of fame instructors induction every year and i was sitting there in the audience one of my best friends a guy named grant masson who's the head pro at st louis country club now that i used to travel with playing professional golf um and we're sitting there and it's butch Harmon and david ledbetter and chuck cook and mike adams you know there's like five or six big name guys getting inducted in the hall of fame and my buddy said something that was really interesting he's like you know I kind of know what everyone on the stage teaches, but I have no idea what Butch teaches, but all of his players play better. Like as far as like some sort of a swing you know, uh, system, if you will, he's like, I kind of know what everyone else does. And I was like, that's a really interesting thought As I'm just kind of getting into teaching. And I went home and I got into a YouTube wormhole trying to search for Butch Harmon. What, how did, what does he think about swing? And everything I found was strategy. Everything I found was how to play a game. And I was like, wow, I think this guy just literally... Knows how to teach people to play golf, and so Claude Harmon and I, uh, you know, Claude's Butch's son works with DJ Brooks. Uh, you know, he's been around the game forever. I was, I was, I was, I was complimenting Butch ad nauseum one time. Like, man, he, Butch is amazing. He's the greatest teacher ever, and blah blah blah. I really think what he teaches with course management is amazing. He's like, dude. Tiger taught him everything. And now he gets to sit back on the range and make $25,000 a half day because Tiger taught him all this stuff. So I'm half kidding with that, but that was kind of about, he's like, Tiger just got it. And again, like I've got this video in the app. We've all seen the video from Curtis Strange the first week that Tiger turned professional where Curtis is saying, what would a good finish be here this week? And Tiger's like winning. He's like, what would second place be? He's like, second sucks. And and Curtis is just like, haha, ha, you'll learn in his smug way of saying it what people don't know is also in that same interview, he asked him like, what have you learned out here so far in your starts? And Tiger's like, you know, last year in the U S open, I got a really interesting lesson. I played with Nick price the first two rounds and Nick shot 66 and was leading the first day. And we're having lunch afterwards and asked him like, how many pins did you fired all day? And he's like, two, he's like, really? I thought that was really weird. We went back the next day and he shot like 66 again at Shinnecock and asked him again, how many pins he's like one or two. And he's like, And here I was firing at every single pin that I felt comfortable on, which was basically all of them. I think that that those two rounds and having Nick Price be like, dude, you don't get it. And that worked what you're doing because you're so physically gifted. What that works on the amateur level, that ain't going to work out here, buddy. And I think that was probably the most important two days of his life that he may not even recognize how important it was because I I, I, I again, I hate saying it because I get such a I've got a bad rap on Twitter already for taking cr- credit for people's play, but you would be blown away at how consistently I have a first person, a, a per- person, tour player reach out in the first week we talk, they go win or have one of their best finishes in a long time. And it's just, yeah, you're really good at golf and just getting you when you're you're hot and excited with this new idea. And then they all taper off super fast, like because they. It's so hard to stay consistent with it, but you take a kid like Zalatoris, who, again, he was 3,300 in the world in the junior golf rankings, not even the Amner golf rankings. When I helped him win the Texas salmon us junior within three months, that guy was number three in the world. And he's never, I mean, again, he's literally never played bad since. Well, I caddied a hundred plus rounds for that guy over the next couple of years. And all we did was talking about this and beating it into his head. You know, when he didn't win, I think it was at rocket mortgage. They're like, you know, what's going on. He's like, I just got to keep doing the same thing I'm doing. And eventually a wind's just going to get in the way. I just, all this stuff is the mindset that we worked on with meditation and, and Josh Waitzkin's book, the art of learning and Dr. Larden's, uh, mental scorecard, just where you committed to the shot or not. Like it was years and years of developing to where he's got it. It's just ingrained in him. Like you, he can't, it's his DNA at this point. Um, and, and the other guy's we spend two or three hours on a webinar. Oh, I got it. And they go out all excited and they own it for that week. And then they just fall right back into their hot habits. It's And so we'll have refreshers every once in a while. They just ride these ups and downs, but it is just uncanny how, how simple it is to get these guys to think better.
0: Football fans, join the next generation of fantasy football with Rainmakers Football, the first ever NFT fantasy game from DraftKings. It's the only NFT fantasy game licensed by the NFL Players Association. You can play all season for millions in prizes by building the ultimate NFT franchise. Playing Rainmakers is simple buy, sell, bid, and win player card NFTs of the biggest names in the game through regular drops and auctions on DraftKings Marketplace. Build your NFT franchise and enter free Rainmakers football contests all season long. You'll be competing for almost 30 million in prizes. Download the DraftKings Fantasy app and sign up with the promo code ADAMS. Click the Rainmakers tile and opt in to get your first card free. You will then be playing for millions in prizes all football season while building the ultimate NFT franchise. That's promo code ADAMS. Build, play, and win only at DraftKings. Let me ask you a gambling question. Let's imagine that someone said... I want you to use all of your expertise and come up with your your odds for say the two thousand twenty three Masters and imagine it was coming up in a couple of weeks or whatever. Um, how would you go about that problem? Let's say let's say you you had you could have a month to figure this out. Let's let's just say 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 they pose the problem six weeks out. Um, How would you go about that problem? Clearly, you think there are some courses. You mentioned the DeChambeau example for U.S. Open where you're saying he's a near lock to win. Presumably, that means that there are a lot of players that are very good that are drawing dead for some reason. Uh, The Masters seemingly would be one of those tournaments where the lesser players are drawing dead, but yet... You have Danny Willett and others win uh how do you how do you determine course fit if it were? How do you see if a player is drawing live in a tough field?
1: How do you assess how live they might be drawing? The first place I would start is what's their dominant shape with driver, and does it fit that course? so a couple of years ago, and I should remember this, like, again, I've, I've just worked with too many guys. So my stories start getting lost, but I'm going to name two names. So it's at least one of these two. It's, it was either Hudson Swafford or Harris English. I really can't, I feel like it was Hudson, but he's playing on a medical exemption. He's down. He's got three starts. And the next two weeks, if he played well, he could get into the FedEx cup playoff still, or take and wait, until the next season like don't burn that you only get so many starts don't burn your second start on whatever the course was like that just doesn't course doesn't fit you like wait for the other one because the only thing we really want to do first and foremost is keep our card and his agent was kind of mad he's like no way dude let's play this event because if you play good here and play good there then you're in the FedEx Cup playoffs and yay and I'm like I wouldn't do it and he went against his agent and waited and he won the tournament I told him to wait for and it was largely because of shot shape off the tee. I want, I want the course to fit your eye off the tee first and foremost. The second thing I'm going to look for is really like, I'm going to start with, are you a good approach player? Like, it's just, it's so, it's so comical how straightforward ball striking trumps everything else by a mile. Like I'm not even, again, this is where like, I, I do listen to a lot of the DFS stuff. I should say, I listen, I don't listen to any of it. I've heard some of it. I'm like, yeah, I guess but a great win rate on the PGA tour is one or 2%. Like, and you're going to try to pick that guy. It's pulling the ace of spades out of a deck. Like, good luck with that. But there are certain courses that are going to fit certain plays, ball shapes. So Augusta national is right to left. Now, does that mean that if you fade it like Zalatoris or DJ or Brooks, we should go start trying to play a draw that week? Hell no. That's when you start taking your three wood and you let it be your draw shape off the tee. But that's why the Masters predominantly has been won by lefties. If you hit the ball hard on average, it's definitely better to fade it, whether you're on the lefty or righty. It's just easier because path is exiting left at speed. It's just easier to keep that going and hold the face right of it. Just path is exiting left because the ball's up in your stance. So path wants to be left. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's going to then if I, if I got the face left of that, it's called a snap hook. If I can keep the face right of it, I'm hitting a hammered cut, but I don't want you to try to hit a draw all of a sudden. So lefties, Bob Charles, Phil Mickelson, Bubba Watson, Mike Weir, even though Mike doesn't hammer it, he still hits fades because on two, five, uh, 10, 13, getting the ball to move right to left is really important. Now, the only holes that draws are even remotely mandatory is 18, or excuse me, a left to right ball flight, Is even remotely mandatory is number 18. I guess it maybe helps to move it right to left on nine, but not really. At this point, the guys are covering everything on the left. So it's, it's shapes kind of irrelevant on nine. So there are two, five, 10, 13. There's four t shots, uh, that you have to draw it. I mean, like there's just new two, two ways about it. So if that just happens to match your natural shot shape, it's like a free two shots. Like if you look, if you net it down to strokes gain, shit, it's probably more than that. Cause you got four rounds, you got eight tee shots. Like it's a, excuse me, 16 tee shots. It's a huge advantage, but then also shot patterns for a right-handed player tend to tilt long left to short right. So I'm going to hit from your angle. I don't know if I'm doing this right. They're going to tilt long left to short right because my poles are going to tend to go further my flares are going to tend to go shorter. So now all of a sudden you get a hole like number 12 where the, the back right pin on Sunday, everybody knows it's in the middle of the green, but everybody wants to push it over there towards the pin. Well, the pin is actually further into the green than where those guys are trying to hit it. If you go straight across, it's the wrong club. But so now they're kind of hoping they push it into the long right portion of their shot pattern. Now, same thing on 13, but let's flip the switch and say I'm a lefty. I can aim at the middle of the green. And if I happen to pull it, awesome. It's tight on 12. If I happen to pull it as a, as a righty, it's in the bushes long left. And if I happen to flare it, it's in the water short, right? If I'm the lefty, my pull is going to still be close and my flare is going to still be on the green. Cause that green tilts so much short left to long, right? Lefties have such an advantage on that golf course. It's amazing. So there are things like that to your question. But then the next thing I'm going to look at, and then this is probably a long answer, but this is what podcasts are for. When everybody after Zalatoris has had all these top 10 finishes in the majors and he's just red hot and he's the best ball striker. And I got him in the British. Like I love will like a son, but I'm like, I wouldn't have him there. Well, why? Because of putting. Oh, you're right. He's a bad putter. No, because line is less relevant at St. Andrews, any British open, the greens are huge and flat. His skill is speed control, which is why at Augusta, he can use these huge brakes. He's got great speed control. The, his line control is the problem. Well, in the British, you don't have as much undulation because and the greens aren't as fast because if it happens to be blowing 40 one day, we've got a problem. So that course is for putting. Your line is more important. I should say that your line is more important than an average weekly basis compared to your speed. Whereas a, a U.S. Open and Augusta National, even a PJ Championship, your speed control is by far more important than your line control. I mean, like, I can't overemphasize that. Then I'll get a cynical guy be like, what if you hit it 90 degrees offline? I'm like, well, then you're not trying. But like given you're actually trying to hit your line in degrees offline, your, your speed is far more important to whether or not you make a putt with any break from outside eight feet than your line is, which is really bizarre to say. So how would you
0: determine a player who was like drawing dead in the field? Of course, in the
1: Masters, you've got some bad players in the field, but just among the set of good players. I wouldn't say anyone is hardly. Ever. Yeah. I mean, I would say these guys and it's going to be like, hey, the guys that bomb it, which is, again, it's what's funny is they're the guys that hit it the furthest. Like people act like I hate saying bomb and gouge. But people act like this distance thing. Distance is a problem. Like who are the greatest players of all time? Nicholas, Woods, Miller, uh, Tom Watson, Fred Couples, they all bomb it. Jim Furyk's really the only guy that kind of bunts it that is an all-time great. But also, Jim, well, it's funny. If If you look back to when he shot 58, like what a round of golf. If you actually go into the shot link images, exactly again what I was talking about with the ball finishing towards the fat side of the green his ball finished on the fat side of the pin 14 out of the 18 times that day. Now it finished really close to the pin, but it still shows he was aiming towards the middle of the green. Mostly still playing with proper strategy. He just had a little bit of variance where the ball just finished in the correct part of his shot pattern, a little bit more than off than than usual, but he still was hitting it in the correct spots and then making putts. Like so Furek, has understood for a long time how to play the game like correctly, and then also as a guy who bunts it. There is one advantage to bunting it is you get to hit driver on every hole. So there might be three or four times a day where everyone else is dropping back to three when hitting at two seventy, and he's still hitting at two ninety or ninety five. So he's always known to hit driver everywhere physically possible, and then wait out variance. But even still, like I don't know what his win rate is. We were just looking at this earlier. I bet it's. I mean, again, here's a good question. What do you think, Jim Furyk? He's second on the all-time PGA Tour money list. As a percentage, what do you think his win rate is? Just as a guess, I don't know. I I would guess one in sixty-five. He's but. played in six hundred and thirty-five events, and he's won seventeen. It's two point six percent. Okay, so pretty good guess. I would have guessed that's pretty. There's a ballpark, but I mean, like. He's literally second on the all time money list and he wins two and a half percent of the time. Yeah. You just don't win in golf. I mean, it's, it sucks. Tiger was at 22 percent for his career, but literally the fact that the second best player in the history of the game is at 2.6 percent, it truly boggles my mind at 71.5 million. That doesn't even make sense that he's it the second best
0: sense. player in the history of the tour. Like, that seems crazy. But, but
1: but this is but this is why i get like maybe it was funny because when i sent you that email i was like well we'll see if he googles and finds facts and games like no i'm not having him on but i get into an argument with brad fax and about stuff and it, it just always comes back to this idea of, of putting and winning is hard and and again zalatoris is my guy and so i do defend him probably a little bit but like jim furek's first five years on tour all they could talk about was for this guy to have any longevity at all out here. He's gonna have to fix a swing. And it took about five years before they're like, you know what? He kind of stripes it every year. Maybe it works. Zalatoris' putting stroke, I get it. It ain't pretty, but at the end of the day, it's extremely functional. He actually was dead on zero. He was dead tour average last year, even as the numbers have it. So he's an average tour putter. There's at least a hundred guys you should be talking about as putting before him. But in that total strokes gained number, they don't have where he finished fifth at the WGC match play, where he finished fourth or whatever it was at the Masters. Uh, his alternate round where he shot 61 at uh, Palm Springs when he finished second or third. Like there's a number of rounds because they don't have shot links set up on every course. There's a number of rounds that I know what his strokes gained putting was from getting the data from him. If you bring those into his overall number, he's like 30th on tour this year. So it's like, I get it. It's not pretty, but also at the end of the day, because the guy has impeccable speed control, it's fine. I just want the announcers to shut up because he's my buddy. And I want him to be able to watch the replay of him finishing second at the Masters. I want him to be able to watch his win in Memphis on TV. And everyone's like, well, just have him put it on mute. Like, well, when they show a close-up of his putting stroke for 30 seconds, you think he can guess what they're talking about? (laughs) I'm going to assume he knows what they're talking about. And it's just not. Since the narrative is wrong, they're the ones that need to update their themselves, not him. Y'all need to tell the story correctly. It's pretty straightforward. He's a good putter. Of course. Yeah, the truth is, when you emailed me,
0: I I did the Google search, and then I talked with my friend Lee, and he's like, you'd be an idiot not to have him on. This guy knows more about golf than anyone. So, of course, <laughs> I got back with you and said... Well, let's perfect. Do it. perfect and and everyone can sympathize with the little twitter tilt let's be honest <laughs> in the poker days well you used to have poker chat tilt
1: oh my god I, I t- it's so funny because I, I i did play online but i didn't play that much i totally forgot about how absurd some of those uh some of those directions can go <laughs> some some of them are
0: captured for life the poker chat tilt you can go on the two plus two archives and see Zygmunt used to have some good ones. You could. There's a
1: thread in the golf forum, me and a guy named Nelson, Nelson, where I was saying that a double breaking putt is easier to make than a straight putt from from 60 feet. He's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I'm like, well, if we have a dead straight putt from 60 feet, my angle of degrees of miss, it's basically like zero. And I have to have pretty damn good speed on it. Whereas as crazy as it's going to sound, a double breaking putt, At least it's kind of circling. It's for sure circling back and forth across the whole sum. And what's funny is this thread, it went, it was ballistically comical. How two adults, this shit we were saying to each other over something as pedantic of which putt is easier to make. It turned into like, I think the title I think the moderators changed it to like the thread that ended golf, the golf form or something like that. But what's funny is I literally went out the next day and I'm like, I'm going to prove this to you. And I literally Zalatoris was, he's 14 or 15 at the time. And he's he's going to a, a Christian school here at the time. And so I literally was like, okay, Will, let's do this. I'm like, Will, uh, I'm going to illustrate that a double breaking putt is easier to make than a straight putt. Are you a man of God? And is this the first time I've ran this? And I literally turned the camera and he's like, yes, I believe in in God. And this is the first putt he's taken at this. I'm like, cool. And then he shows it to me and I made the first one, which was total luck. But I I'm just trying to illustrate like my line is less relevant. The, the the more break you get and the longer the putt gets, but a dead straight putt, I only have one option. It's perfect. Whereas at least if I know the putt's going to be moving around, it's got a chance for the hole to just accidentally get in the way. Yeah. That's, that's
0: logical to me because if it is a double breaker, it's more likely that you're kind of going down a, a, a fall line as it were, right? Like you're going down the
1: bobsled track, right? Like, well, but, but even if the hole was on the second portion of the break, so I'm not right on the fall line. So the fall, I see what you're saying, I'm putting down the valley. Right. Even if yeah. it's not just because I'm able to get the ball rolling across multiple lines, the hole's going to get in the way of more of those because I, the way putting works is, it's, it's like a combination of lock. You have to, in any putt has a hundred, I'm making up a number there, a bunch of different lines that can go in. And there's only one speed with each line that can go in. And for the long straight putt, there is really only one line and one speed that can go in. But once I kick some break on it, there's a bunch of different lines and a bunch of different speeds that have a chance. It's just whether or not I get the other one accidentally correct. I don't know if I'm explaining everyone. It well. No, it's that, that, a hard that, one to abstractly that explain. That makes sense.
0: That makes sense. Um and Twitter tilt, by the way, is is a little fun. It's good for it's good for engagement. It's it's like middle school. The fight is a hundred X engagement, I think. Twitter uh, is, Twitter is Twitter is built is built for that
1: again the one that I recently got in trouble with I probably could have worded a couple of them a little bit better than I did but my first tweet when I first went off the rails was just a joke for people I, I told an announcer that he was wrong in less than colorful language uh about Will's putting when he was winning in Memphis and then Brad Faxon who hates me tried to get me in trouble by retweeting it and then Justin Thomas jumped in And next thing you know there's a New York Post article I'm like damn I wasn't expecting that to happen but uh it was pretty comical because honestly, I had two million unique views on my Twitter profile in the next forty-eight hours, and as a guy who only has thirty-three thousand followers, that's uh, that's more than I get on a daily basis. I can assure you.
0: <laughs> I love it. Now you had an eventful day today. You have the journalist David Epstein, who wrote the best-selling book Range,
2: Absolutely.
0: there with you. What are what are you guys doing today? Or this well, week,
1: because actually, I was trying to think of a way. Because w- what I was trying to, he, we're here talking a lot about like perfectionism and perfectionist, and how that's really just a crutch. And I was trying to kind of relate that into poker and tilt, because a lot of tilt, I think, comes from a lot. My golf tilt comes from trying to be a perfectionist, and I assume a lot of poker tilt is people who think, "Man, I played this hand perfectly, and you got lucky, you donkey." Um, So we're here talking about some perfectionism stuff. Like, do you, do you know much about poker? Like, can you relate? I'm trying to relate like a poker question in here to uh to draw him in
2: i mean i have a question i have a question because and this is this is this is very conceptual so like i don't want to draw drag you guys down to like my level here but but i will anyway um that, that a lot of what you're you're talking about in golf like at the most basic level like you guys have really been getting into some of the nitty-gritty but is you know that that given given luck right given the fact that people can't control their golf shots as well as they they wish they could you have a range of uh uh you know a range of possible outcomes and basically you want to change your strategy to eliminate the worst of those outcomes in many cases a little bit you want to move you want to move that dispersion of your shots over a little bit so that you're rubbing out the chances of really bad outcomes
1: well it's kind of honestly it's kind of like when people say shorting a stock is so much more dangerous than being long because you have infinite upside loss. You know, if you short something at a hundred, it could go to 10,000. You know, if you buy something at a hundred, it can only go to zero. That's actually very, I never really thought of it that way, but in a range of outcomes in golf, like once you get it into the water, we have unlimited upside, whereas playing aggressively, you can kind of really only make a birdie. Like, obviously, you hole out some shots, but really, you can kind of only make a birdie. We actually, it just I didn't see if the guy made it or not. Some guy apparently shot 74 last week in the final stage of Q School with a 13. He apparently just got stuck on a tee box and hit it into the water like four or five times and then played under from there. So this guy shot 74 in Q School with a 13. Um, so you've got unlimited negative upside and really limited good side to it
2: right okay so so if if the conceptual idea is that you have this range of possible outcomes it's not under your control to the degree that you wish it were even for the best players in the world right they have a broad shot dispersion you shift that a little bit to eliminate those worst outcomes if i were saying well is poker the same then my hypothesis that i'd want to test would be basically you have hands with a range of possible outcomes you want to shift a little bit away from the worst ones. Do the best players say fold more than amateur players do pro players fold more? I don't know if, if this part of poker is like that part of golf, then my hypothesis would be that the best players that pros fold more than amateurs.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot to that, right? Like if I'm teaching an amateur player, I will usually give them very straightforward advice, play quite tight, play positional, and it will generally help them because poker is a game where you're trying to navigate asymmetries. You, you know that there are real danger minds out there where you could be way behind in a spot. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, it's queen eight deuce on the flop and you have a middling hand like, well, let's say you have a fairly strong hand like king queen you're always navigating the possibility that your opponent might have a set of deuces. They might have you, uh, drawing to run a runner. And in those asymmetries, there is a a cost benefit. Like if you are going to make an aggressive action, you have this very severe cost, which is you could, you could get it in drawing to run a (laughs) runner. And you're trading that up against the idea that you have a very small benefit, which is you might have a small lead over a drawing hand or something along, uh, along these lines. So there is a lot of merit to playing the conservative side of this cost benefit. And in Recreational games, a lot of times you can just play very straightforward. You play tighter than your opponents and play more positional, and that's a winning strategy. When you're up against very tough opposition, you have to thread those asymmetries very carefully. Mm-hmm. And there's there's really uh, no conservatism that's allowed for. And um, to answer the question about tilt, I think that tilt – for a recreational player is a very simple emotional phenomenon, right? They're having the adrenaline sort of wreak havoc on their decision-making and the the fight or flight response is preventing sound logic. But for a very strong player, tilt is a really subtle thing. For instance, I... I played this match against Phil Galfon a couple years ago. We were doing some, some PLO and I was getting laid a price on the overall result of the match. And I had prepared very carefully for the match. And one of my overall pieces of strategy was that I, I knew approximately what, the equilibrium strategy was based on hundreds of hours of study in each particular spot. And I had a belief that Phil, he knows where these spots are better than I do, but his comfort zone is actually on the tighter, the tighter side of these spots. And it was my belief that to win strategically, I could never go to his comfort zone. I could never be on the tighter side of these frequencies, these correct frequencies. And if anything, because he would tend to be on the tight side, I, I would do better airing just a tad on the looser side of the correct frequencies. So I knew that I would be in trouble strategically in the match. If I got quite tight relative to the optimal frequencies. Cause then I would be perfectly in his comfort zone. And the way it went down was, um, the first day he had a big winning day. Then the second day I had, uh, a big winning day and going into the third day, it was, it was relatively closely contested contest. And, and early in that day, I, lost a big pot in unlucky fashion. And what it caused me to do was be a tad more conservative than I wanted to be. So the form of tilt that I took was not your usual form of tilt where you get very aggressive trying to get back to even or whatever. It was that I became a little bit conservative, a little bit careful. Just a little gun shy. Yeah. And that was exactly where I didn't want to be in the match. I had laid it out strategically that I didn't want to be in that region. And the result on the day was a pummeling. And that, that day sort of told the story of the overall match. So, so tilt, it can be, it can be quite subtle. Um, And in this case, it was not what most people think about till it was being a little too careful and a little too tight.
2: Interesting. And that's obviously very different than the golfers you're talking about, right? Because you're, you're talking about like how a specific individual is impacting your strategy, right? Which in golf yeah. is like, there's some superstar yeah. effect, right? That when people, when Tiger would be playing, people would play a little bit differently. But for the most part, are playing against their own tendencies
1: well that was the one thing that i had kind of made a note of here while you were talking is the one thing that people get wrong in golf strategy is they're like i'm on the 18th hole i've got to make birdie to get in a playoff to win i should play more aggressively i'm I'm gonna make more birdies by firing right at this pin and and it's just not the way it works in golf because no matter what we still have a shot pattern we still have that to deal with and, and golf is the only sport that that doesn't have defense. There's no shared ball. There's no mutual clock. So you can't impact your opponent's play. Whereas in poker, like I can play more aggressive and impact your play. Well, that was one, the one thing I thought was interesting with, with your podcast with Negron, where he's talking about like, okay, everybody's out here playing GTO. And if they're all doing it, then what are we actually doing? If they're, if, they, if they're doing it perfectly. But if you notice a guy's playing a little more passively, then you shouldn't play GTO. You should play a little bit more aggressively. I feel like that's kind of the gist of what he was saying. And so, yes, there are some optimal plays like by the book, but if you're not adjusting to your opponent's play, you're kind of leaving some equity out there. Would that be accurate?
0: That's accurate. When you you get to the higher levels of play, people are trying to stay pretty tight to what they view as the GTO frequencies. Um, So you're making very subtle adjustments at that point. How do you do that? Well, (laughs) you know, approximately a a frequency that you want to employ. Let's just say you want to three bet 12% of your hands in, in, in PLO for a certain stack depth. And you know what hands that implies you're three betting with, right? So so one one way is just to have exact hand ranges in mind and when you get the the combos that fit in that 12%, you're just always 3-betting. That that gets you there, right? But if it's um if it's a spot say where you can't just rely on your hand um and in PLO this doesn't come up but in in no limit you might have a mixed strategy where you're say Calling seventy five percent of the time, raising twenty five percent of the time. There you can use suits or whatever as a randomization. You're still going by the cards.
1: That's kind of what I was wondering. If there's a, if there's a different way you go from what suit is it on the left or whatever, like because just changing from the, from twelve and a half percent to what would that number go to twenty percent? That seems like a big jump. But then the second you just said all of them, which I know you probably didn't mean it that way. Well, no,
0: no the twelve the twelve and a half percent that would be your overall frequency of three bet so you could you could then have a a cut off hand,
1: add two type of
0: hand that tells you how do you get to 12 and a half percent and then anytime you have that that hand you just three bet and you're getting to that frequency that you desire um but if it's if it's a game where you're gonna have a a mixed strategy then you can use suits as the randomization. The tougher situations are one where um, all of the cards have been dealt and now you're going you're gonna to bluff some frequency of the time. Um, to randomize that is tricky. Some of the more technical players will use various devices, like they'll have a, a timer that's going all the time and they'll just say all right one third is is up to 20 seconds and and stuff like that um
1: when did that start because I, I i don't i had never really heard anyone talk about that back whenever i was playing again like 03 through 06 and then i saw someone talking about it one time i was like shit that's a pretty good idea i never really thought about that was that kind of a newish gto type idea
0: well i would recommend the negranu podcast with with lex friedman where he
1: listened to it that's probably where i heard it yeah
0: yeah it's a very it's a very good one but he talks about the idea that cornerstones of the way we think about poker today were just not at all a thing in the early 2000s so it wasn't just you and your poker trajectory there was really no talk about GTO and best response to best response and blockers and card removal. Uh, no one was talking about it there. It's, it's um, from my perspective. It would have seemed unlikely that game theory took over the way we thought about poker. Cause my, my particular, my particular trajectory was, I had played poker like in the college years, but then when I was at Harvard, they had the Harvard poker club and there were some very analytical people that were using game theory to study poker scenarios in a very academic way. And that, that was how I started in poker. So the GTO, um, logic was always how I looked at the game. And then, um, The first book to make significant progress there was the uh, Bill Chin and Jared Enkenman book, The Theory of Poker, that came out in late 2006. And then when that book came out, it was a big step. And I was able to then digest that and progress from there. Um, But The GTO school was sort of always my lens, um, but it didn't seem inevitable to me that everyone would use game theory as the way they looked at it. From looking backwards, of course, you can say, all right, it was inevitable that a static game would yield to analytical methods plus computing power. And obviously these analytical methods would be game theory, the science of strategic interaction. it seems obvious like in retrospect, but if you were talking to me in 2007, I would have never guessed that the entire poker universe would adopt the language of game theory.
1: Well, that's, it's funny. Cause as you were saying that, that's almost what I was thinking about with tiger probably has to be looking at like, I know I play with better strategy than everyone. And then, like with all due arrogance, like I came along and wrote the book on, well, here's how you do that. Quite simply, you know, use, if, if it's a heart on the left, now we've got 25% randomization, like as silly as that it sounds like, it's just such a good idea. Like I want to be doing this 25% of the time. Like, well, what's my left card. Cool. It's funny. Cause from that podcast I bought, I haven't dug into it yet. The modern theory of poker, uh, that book that Daniel was talking about by Michael Acevedo. I, I
0: know, I know Michael. Well, uh, I was getting some poker coaching from Michael. He's a, a very, very sharp guy.
1: Yeah. I've, I've got that book sitting on my Island downstairs. I, I took it to West Palm beach last week to try to dig into, and I just didn't quite uh, quite have it in me. But again, I think one of the main things is just like the idea that in aggression in poker, like you can impact your opponent's play. And there's just, that's just not the way it works in golf. I have one hand I want to ask you about now. I hadn't even thought about this until you said King Queen a second ago. So I played in the main event in 2006 and I was your standard donkey that should not be throwing $10,000 away. But I get, there's a guy that hadn't played a single hand in as as long as I could possibly remember. He under the gun raises it to 5X or whatever. And I'm in the, the hijack and I look down, I've got King Queen of spades. And I'm just like, dude, I could hit this and I could be just dead dominated. Like, and I fold it. He gets called by both the small blind and the big blind. The flop comes King. First of all, is that a hand that you're always folding or always raising? You're never like, what are you doing with that hand in in that scenario? Guy doesn't play much. He raises pretty big five X, the big blind. You look down at King queen and the hijack. What are you doing there? First of all, fold fold uh, yeah. okay that's what i did that's what i did now the the the, the punchline is probably not hard to see the flop comes king 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 and i was proud of myself i just sat there with a stoic face I'm like holy shit that's interesting the small blind shoves the big blind calls the guy that originally opened called and i'm like what the hell just happened and it was jacks queens and aces wow and I would have flopped quad kings. And I literally was like, I had to get up and walk out of the Rio and go get a drink. I was so like, I don't know if a fourth guy would have changed the calculus on anyone's head because it was like, "Shove, call, call. I'm like, no one's got the king. Like, but wow. that is a fold. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a That's a fold. And I feel better. Michael, but- Michael Acevedo's book. It could be the best poker book ever. Nice. It definitely would be if it were more carefully edited, like they maybe rushed it a tad, but as is, it might still be the best poker book ever. And what you will see is that the game is very positional, right? So, this the starting hands are exceptionally positional. So, if you're playing GTO, you're just quite tight under the gun. That's correct. That's GTO. And so the response function for everyone else at the table is quite tight against under the gun. And um, then you could make adjustments if the player is especially tight or if their raise size is big and you can just play exceptionally tight against that player. So you, you were correct to fold the king queen suited. Again, it's a game of of threading asymmetries, right? And uh the asymmetries with the King Queen suited are are working against you in that particular situation.
1: I mean, just even if I hit the flop, I'm just I'm gonna have nowhere to know where I am if he just leads out. Like, am I dominated? Like, is he like you just I just felt like this is a situation where I'm not gonna know. I was I was on the fence, and probably if it'd been anyone else, I would have. Called, but this guy just hadn't played at all. He was was this is like five hours in probably. And so he's the traditional guy that's like just trying to make it to day two and just not get blinded off. Um, yeah, it sucked.
0: Yeah, if it's a if it's a different scenario and two other players had called and your hand was seven, eight suited or whatever, then
1: after calls the
0: asymmetries are working in your favor and you call, but with King Queen suited in that particular spot. It's, uh, it's really a reverse implied odd situation for you. And you, you should play that situation carefully.
1: This is one question David and I were talking about earlier, like in match play in golf. I don't know what the actual number is, but if Tiger's playing like number 100 in the world, he's probably like an 80, 20 edge, but it's literally still number 100 in the world. I mean, like it's one of the best players on the planet. If you get a guy like Ivy and and you just in heads up, what you know, if you played a hundred sessions of the exact same game, like what is his edge over you? Is that as slim as fifty-five forty-five, or is it like a seventy thirty or fifty-one forty-nine? Like again, I'm asking, you to make up a number here. It would, would
0: you- be it would be super tight around fifty percent. Would it really?
1: Uh, it would it would
0: depend a lot on the structure of things, but it would be it would be a tightly run thing for sure.
1: That's interesting.
0: Now there are certain structures that you could come up with where it would be different, but under like a common kind of tournament type structure, it would be a closely run thing.
1: Very nice. What,
0: it's uh, become a technical game and that's, that's that? made it, it's become a technical game and that makes it a tighter run thing for the most part.
1: Do you like that or not? I mean, I assume that the assume the edges are disappearing and then if that's the case,
0: I like it. You're you're never going to compare to the environment of 2004 through 2008 just because the characters were so fascinating and everyone is learning a lot at the same time. So it's not as fun as it was then, but I still love it. It's still fun.
1: You're in Miami. Is that right? I'm in Miami. Do you play a lot down there? Play a lot of poker?
0: Yeah. Uh, I play a moderate amount of poker down here. Not... Not super regular, and uh very little golf. But if you're ever in Miami, we should play some golf together.
1: I would definitely. I'm bad. Like
0: that. I'm. I'm bad. Bad.
1: Well, but to like that point, I guess it was Antonius. Did he? you shot eighty from the tips, and you shot mid eighties. Five.
0: That- yeah, I think if I were to play, say, the tips at Shadow Creek, I would say that my average would be ninety-six, ninety-five. From the tips at shadow, I would say that that would be that would be my average
1: obviously, since we've got the uh, the author of the sports gene sitting right here, is there a genetic component you think to what makes a better poker player or just somebody who's smart?
2: I <laughs> uh, It means the so-called first law of behavior genetics is every every behavioral characteristic has a genetic component it's just a question of how big it is. Um, so. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about people having to regulate their, in addition to being smart, right? I I would imagine that the people that excel at poker uh, tend to excel on all sorts of tests of, of cognitive abilities and decision making and things like that, but also about the temperament of being able to regulate their emotions to to make good decisions. Uh, absolutely, I think they're they're uh, some you know. Training and and your environment matters, but no question, I think there are genetic underpinnings uh, that sort of thing. Not not to mention just the willingness to want to play, right? Like it's like gambling is a pretty well known uh, dopamine spur, and that's sort of w- what you feel rewarded for doing has a has a big impact on on what you'll keep doing. Um, so for think-
0: sure, and I think that more than anything else probably explains why there aren't more females playing. The fact that Again, I don't want to delve too much into the biology, but it it seems like that response to the dopamine high is a little bit more of a male trait. And so I think that there's just not quite the psychic payoff for females as there are for males. And that's why we don't have more uh, female players.
1: Well, I think you can safely say on average, this is... True, like without it turning into any sort of a, oh my god, am I getting myself into sexist trouble here or anything like that? But on average, I think that statement is probably pretty genetically true. Maybe. I think when you
0: look at other dopamine behaviors, it <laughs> would seem to be a strong male thing, right? Like I would imagine most cocaine addicts are male, and all all these sorts of things. I would imagine that this is, yeah. but I I could be making an a, an unreasonable generalization the, interesting. one one interesting one david is when you're considering the emotional makeup of a poker player there is there there is a very high incidence of like asperger's type personalities mm-hmm. and that type is drawn to pattern recognition and they tend to be a bit obsessive about putting together the pieces of a tough problem so it's not so surprising but i also think one of the reasons is that this type of personality they really do view the bluffing element as just part of the game they don't view it as anything personal they they actually don't have a problem with it and so Um, like if you're playing a pot against your friend and you guys are playing for life-changing money, say it's a tournament spot that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and you decide to go all in on a bluff against him on the river, for this type of personality that maybe is a little bit spectrum-ish or what have you, they're, they are more inclined to see it as like nothing personal. It's just, it's just part of the game. It's just my bluffing frequency is supposed to be 33%. And this just happens to be the time I go for it. Like,
2: just very analytical. Yeah. You, you guys should go take the, you know, uh, uh, Sacha Baron Cohen, you know, the comedian, his, his cousin, Simon Baron Cohen is like one of the world's experts in, uh, in autism. Oh, really. And he has a he has a sort of survey you can take online. He has this theory that he that there's sort of a spectrum from empathizer to systematizer in sort of how your personality is. Are you more sort of feeling uh or, or are you more sort of analytical oriented, like more systematizer? You know, like do you collect things and categorize things and look at train schedules? Or, you know, are you are you much more sort of go by intuitive feeling for the world and you can take the quiz and see if you're far systematizer or empathizer. And, and there's tons of overlap between men and women, but generally women score a little more on the empathizer and men a little more on the systematizer, but people with, with autism, he, he characterizes as the extreme version of the systematizer brain basically. And that autism affects, you know, boys and men quite a bit more uh, than girls and women. And my expectation would be that, um, you know, the, really good poker players would probably be shifted to the systematizer end a little bit compared to the, to the general population. But I'd be interested to see you two guys, you know, take, take the quiz and see, see if you're systematizers or empathizers. My hypothesis would be not only are you systematizers probably a little bit shifted that direction, even compared to, to guys in general. Yeah, I would definitely now, think so. Um,
0: I, I play tennis and I'm not talented at all. I've gotten pretty far based on hard work. I'm a very good adult player based on hard work, but I'm not talented. And for tennis and other sports, I've always had the view that you could construct a a sports IQ that would give you the underlying talent factor, as it were. And it it sounds like, David, you're very much of this view, but it it would be things like, visual acuity and reaction speed and and processing reflex uh these types of things that would tell you your natural inclination to be able to make adjustments for an oncoming tennis ball is is this your view of things that like it's mainly talent and then hard work is giving you stuff around the edges i think
2: it's i think it's Well, first of all, I think reflexes are not what people think they are. So reflexes, I think, would generally not be one of them. Um, But it would be like the reason that great tennis players seem to have such good reflexes is that they're just picking up on cues from the ball and the body of their opponent to see what's coming before it happens, Um, because otherwise it's way too like a serve from a pro tennis player probably takes, um, you know, maybe maybe four tenths of a second or something like that um to 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 reach you and that's like it takes half that time just for a like to see that there's an object in front of you to have like a signal go from your brain to your muscle to start your muscle fibers twitching it's way too slow if you're actually seeing the ball and reacting to it so when the ball's up in the air you know they're having to look at body position angle of the racket and things to make a judgment ahead of time of where it's going so you can see in these scott and i were talking about this earlier these so-called occlusion studies where like if you delete visual information from like the wrist to the elbow of someone serving you will make the ability of a pro player to return the serve a lot worse because can, can i go through away. the entire
1: analogy of pitching and softball like because yeah think
2: that's... so so that's why there used to be like this tv show where the best major league baseball players couldn't hit softball pitchers because they thought they could, because the transit time of the pitch, even though it's from a closer mound from about a forty three foot mound in softball, um, is about the same because they're only throwing you know sixty miles an hour or so. And so these major league baseball players thought that, you know, and the ball's bigger, so they thought they would smoke it. And in fact, they couldn't even hit foul balls because they need cues from the body of the pitcher, like the rotation of the the shoulder, you know, the angle of the arm, twist of the torso, the flicker of the pitch, which is the flashing pattern that the seams of the ball make when it spins. And they, they group those into a signal that basically says like balls going here, there swing or don't swing as soon as it's released. So when they're faced with a pitcher who has like, (laughs) that's crazy, different like (laughs) rotation of the shoulder, you know, different angle of release, the ball looks different. The seams are different. They're like stripped of all of this anticipatory information that they spent all this time learning. And when they're left to use their reflexes and the reflexes can't possibly do it. In fact, like we can't even, we don't even have a visual system that's capable of tracking an object as it gets that close to our face, like it's angular position is changing so rapidly. So you could tell someone to like, people tell their kids to keep their eye on the ball. Like you could tell them to close their eyes when the ball were halfway in. It would make no difference if it weren't like psychologically upsetting to what they're doing because they already have to have decided what to do. So reflexes can't do it. So like athletes a long time ago used to get these reflex tests and that's how they would be selected. But it turns out that that's, that this is a software, not a hardware skill but that people, you know, are able to sort of load that that software at very different speeds and that things they have like visual acuity make a big difference once they've acquired those skills. So there's like this interaction of, um, you know, hardware and software, essentially. And I would say for something like tennis, we were also talking about this. There's this funny book called... Extraordinary Tennis for the Ordinary Player by a guy named Cy Ramo, who's better known as the father of the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. Um, and, and basically what he was, he was arguing was that at the pro level, something, you know, just roughly speaking, like 80% of points are shots uh, that were just really hard to return and 20% are errors. And it's the reverse um, at, at the amateur level. And so his argument is you just try to avoid errors. Basically as an amateur player, you can become really good just by avoiding errors and not, which in this sense has a little bit, we were talking about it because I think it has some commonality with, with what Scott's talking about in golf is that avoiding errors gets you, gets you quite far. Um, So I think you can get really far in tennis. If, you know, I think it'd be a different, quite once you're, once you're competing with the people that have the hardware and the software, I think it becomes a, a different game or like sure. anything
1: you just keep whittling people out and then it's just like you finally
2: you've got it all like we're we're done whittling out people with all of these different skills and it's changes you can even see in the physiology so like when racket heads got bigger and material got more flexible um the heights of players changed very quickly because suddenly the power game became a lot more important so you can see this sort of hardware aspect in sports all over the place so women's players especially got like much taller compared to to the general population of women because as those rackets allowed the power game to be a bigger deal and you didn't have to run around the court as much, right? Because you didn't have to hit the ball as square. It literally changes the physiology of the players who succeed. There are examples of this all over sports. Like the most dramatic one is probably when when Dick Fosbury first started jumping backwards over the high jump bar, Um, you know, and you curl. And the reason this works is because his center of mass is in the middle of the, the donut basically. So it can actually go under the bar while he goes over over the next two olympic cycles the average height of a of an olympic high Wait, jumper say, say
1: that again because
2: i never really understood the physics of what's going on there so you know when you're jumping like this he he's he's curled he's you curl- have to get the center of mass he's curling over, over the bar there. no the center of mass can go under because that, no, that's what i'm saying if you're jumping in. this way right but right. that way but if he curls his center of mass is is there and it can actually pass under the bar while his body goes over the bar and so all of a sudden there's a big premium on starting with a higher center of mass and so over the next two Olympic cycles, the average height of a high jumper in the Olympics went up like five inches or something, because suddenly just starting with a higher center of mass became a bigger deal. There's this stuff like hit I just never would have thought colors. the center of mass actually went under the bar. That that's nuts so while well, you're going like, over it. Yeah, it's very like simple from a physics perspective. But of course, it took a guy like doing it, and then people in retrospect being like, Well, of course that makes sense, you know. But it was just him screwing around. But there's there's all these like interesting these Australian scientists like cataloged all these interesting like body changes that occur in sports as strategy and and equipment uh, changes to, to, to change who is then optimal for the sport.
0: I need to do the decade system for tennis. I'll tell the bad players to just aim for the, uh, the T at the service box. And (laughs) there you go. Well, I have have to go. I have have a hard stop at five. Uh, I I'm deeply appreciative for this time. This has been fantastic.
1: Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Nice meeting you, Brandon.
0: I hope we can do this again sometime. Love to.